Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Uh, today's show, it is another live event. It is another show where I was speaking as part of Stumptown Stories, a local Portland and Oregon history collective, and it is about the historiography around the Lewis and Clark expedition. And historiography is the study of the study of history. So it's me talking about what the literature and reputation of those guys has been throughout the various decades. They have not always been unambiguous American heroes, or even thought of. Uh, the audio is a little off, but such is the way of things with live events. Enjoy! So this image right here behind me is the wall outside the Oregon Historical Society. And on the wall of the Oregon Historical Society, uh, Lewis and Clark rise up in this amazing Trump Loy painting that looks 3D, but isn't. It tricks the eye. That's what Trump Loy means on Francais. Um, and they are literally larger than life and statuesque. And these are the figures that this historical society has chosen to be representatives of representatives of Oregon history as a whole. And I think it's really interesting to think about who's not on this giant, larger-than-life, statuesque Trump Loy. So here's who's not on the Trump Loy, you know, over the park blocks, looking down at all tweakers who are outside the historical society. <laughs> there is not John McLaughlin, the father of Portland, Oregon. He's not up there. There is not Tom McCall, Oregon's most beloved governor. Everyone likes Tom McCall. Republicans, Democrats, communists, libertarians, anarchists, nihilists. We all like Tom McCall. He's not up there. Um, there are not any representatives of various Oregon Native American tribes who were here before white people showed up. Um, there's not Oregon's official state motto, you have died of dysentery. Um, instead, when faced with the construction of a symbol that's going to say, Oregon history, everybody, the Oregon Historical Society has gone for Clark and Lewis up there. Why on earth would we do that? Um, you might be thinking it is because they are the first Americans to come to Oregon. But they weren't. Uh, Captain Robert Gray, with his ship, the Columbia Redaviva, that made its way to what is now Oregon in the 1790s. Well, he had a boat, and a boat is a vehicle. That's cheating. Uh, you might think that Lewis and Clark, they were the first Europeans or Americans to make an overland trip out of the eastern part of the continent to the, to the western part of the, part of the continent. But you would also be wrong. Um, the honor for doing that, first big overland trip by white people, uh, that goes to Alexander Mackenzie. He was a Scotsman who made an overland expedition through what is now Canada to the Pacific Coast, uh, also in the 1790s. So why Lewis and Clark? How did they get to be the towering, gigantic, statuesque figures that they are today? Well, you would think that Lewis and Clark, with all of the hoopla about them, back in 1904, 1905, 1906, would be greeted with enthusiasm akin to the moon landing today. You would think that this would be sort of an exercise, an exploration, and discovery that all of the eyes of the world, or at least America, which as far as we're concerned is also the world, were on. But it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, initially, Lewis and Clark were considered failures. So, when Thomas Jefferson sent them out to do their Lewis and Clarking, 
Uh, this was what he said. He said, the object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal streams of it as by courses in communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, whether the Columbia, Oregon, Colorado, or any other river may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce. So basically what he's asking for is for them to find a Northwest Passage. Um, he is saying, I want you guys to go investigate a bunch of rivers and see if there is a river route from here, the eastern part of the continent, to there, the western part of the continent. That was their mission. Now, you can go by water from the eastern part of the continent to the western part of the continent, but it is um, not a nice route. Uh, if you want to do that, you're going to have to go up over Canada, around a bunch of islands, over and above Alaska, uh, through the Bering Strait, and then, then you will get there. Um, that is, if there is such a thing as a Northwest Passage, that is the route that you would have to take. So, obviously, they're not finding any nice overland river routes. Um, instead, they have to take this overland route, which is inconvenient. Um, Jefferson, when they came back, tried to pivot. Uh, Jefferson basically tried to say, oh, you know what, this thing where we sent a bunch of dudes out there to the opposite side of the landmass we live on? Um, that was all about exploration. It wasn't just about the Northwest Passage. Hey, we just got the Louisiana Purchase, and we need to see some, send some guys out there to map everything. And you know what? These guys, they took copious notes. Um, think about the scientific benefits of this. So Jefferson tried to turn a failure, their failure to discover the Northwest, Northwest Passage, into this kind of humanistic scientific success. So uh, it was Meriwether Lewis's job to take all of their notes and diaries and things that they had written down and you know sketches of interesting rocks and that kind of thing. Um, and turn it into an account of their journal, uh, account of their journey for popular consumption. Um, the idea is that it would be about a three-volume set. Um, Meriwether Lewis did not achieve this goal. Lots of historians nowadays think that he was either schizophrenic or bipolar. Uh, if he were alive today, that is the words that we would use to describe him. Um, back in the early 1800s, they did not have those words, and he was called things like hot-headed. He was called melancholic. Um, Jefferson wrote about his peculiar character of mind. Um, these were all the ways that they characterized mental illness back then. Um, and Lewis was not able to complete this literary endeavor, and he did end up taking his own life. So, that plan doesn't work out so well. Um, they need somebody else to do this. I know, it's, got, it's, it's very sad. This is not lighthearted or anything. So they need somebody else to um, complete this popularization of all of their data. They need somebody else to take all of their notes and raw data and turn it into something that the average person can sit down and read. So Clark, he handed over, handed over the task to a guy called Nicholas Biddle. And Nicholas Biddle at the time, he was this young, budding academic. He was very young. He was all of 17. And he said, you dude, you are going to sift through all of our crap, and you're going to read it, and you're going to find a narrative thread, and come out with something that you know the average person can pick up and read. So Nicholas Biddle did do this. 
he did produce a three-volume Lewis and Clark set that came out in 1814. So almost a decade after they got back, and nobody bought it. Uh, it was considered a complete failure. Like that Gem in the Holograms movie that they just pulled from theaters after two weeks. It was even worse than that. It sold 1,417 copies, which is not a lot. For context, that's about how many people listen to my podcast every week. <laughs> I know. That's how pathetic it was. And for the rest of the 1800s, after this one initial popularization of their journey, uh, they're pretty unknown. And their journals just kind of sat gathering dust at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. Um, and mentions of Lewis and Clark from early in the 1800s to the 1890s are basically non-existent. Um, there might be some mention or some citation of them in some book or journal or newspaper or something. If there is, people haven't found it yet. Uh, by the 1890s, they're mentioned basically as an encyclopedic footnote. So they are far, far, far away from being those larger-than-life statuesque figures that are today outside the Oregon Historical Society. Um, in the 1890s, they do get a tiny, tiny little uh, bump from obscurity. There is an army naturalist named Elliot Coos who decided to uh, basically crack into the actual journals to produce an annotated version of Biddle's 1814 account. And I'm thinking about this guy, Elliot Coos, this naturalist, and I'm thinking, dude, you are, God, extremely nerdy. Because this is what this guy decided to do. He said, oh, this book that sold less than 1,500 copies, you know what this book that nobody, nobody read needs? It needs an exhaustive annotated edition. <laughs> I'm going to crack into the primary sources for it and see if there is a market for that. Wow, dude. Um, so he did do that, and that did bring Lewis and Clark out of the obscurity that they were sort of living in in the 1800s. That was one thing that kind of very, very slightly rescued them from oblivion. Um, the other big thing was their centennial. So in, oh, that's, a, that's Biddle right there. Uh, that's an older picture of him. He went on to become a banker. He did not stay a history popularizer, um, which is probably a good move on his part, because trust me, there is no money in it. This brings us to, uh, you know, 1905. 1905, Portland, Oregon, doing pretty okay, developing. There's lots of timber. There's lots of ocean-going trade. Ocean -going trade. The Columbia River has been dredged. We are, you know, exporting wheat all over the place, and... Uh, this city wanted to become the premier city in the Pacific Northwest. How do you do that? How do you promote yourself in the world of 1905? Well, or early 1900s, well, you throw a great, big, grandiose, extravagant party. So, <clears throat> Portland, Oregon wanted to throw this gigantic World's Fair-esque style um, extravaganza to promote itself. And I really want to emphasize that. 
The Lewis and Clark Exposition that ended up happening in 1905 didn't happen because the city was in love with Lewis and Clark. The Lewis and Clark Expedition ended up happening because Portland wanted to throw a gigantic party to attract capital. Portland wanted to get itself on the map, attract attention, get itself in other newspapers in other cities, and get people to move here. Which is weird, given our situation now. <laughs> that was the main motivation for having this big World's Fair type situation. Which never, by the way, was an actual World's Fair, but it's usually called a World's Fair. It was informally promoted as a World's Fair. Um, some of the literature does actually say as much, but when they called this thing a World's Fair, that's basically like calling your hamburger joint Rick Donald's. Um, they were not, they did not have to go ahead to actually do that, but they still did. And Portland needs a pretense to throw this gigantic extravaganza. What kind of pretense could they use? Well, there are these guys. Uh, Lewis and Clark. So, when they were promoting this thing, they wanted to fund it for a variety of ways. One, uh, local funding. They got ordinary people to buy uh, basically subscriptions for it so they could invest in it and get some dividends on the, um, on the expo if it turned out well. And it did turn out well. It actually did, did turn out to be a savvy investment for folks. Uh, also, the Oregon State government uh, sunk a bunch of money into it. And Oregon wanted to get a whole bunch of money from the, fed, from the feds. So uh, the Oregon congressional delegation and lots of Oregon lobbyists try to squeeze out a whole bunch of federal money so we can throw this giant party. And Congress, the US Congress, when they hear about this idea, their reaction is basically, who are Lewis and Clark? And why on earth would we want to celebrate them? So, um, Carl Abbott's a historian in Portland, Oregon, and I'm calling from his book called Portland, which is about Portland. And he said that when the Oregon Congressional Delegation goes to um, lobby Congress, uh, they are completely perplexed, don't know what this is about. Um, and they're into the idea of promoting commerce and trade uh, around the West Coast. But all the sort of like historical commemoration, they're like, okay, whatever, it's tacked on, we don't care. Um, and Oregon got about 20% of what it actually wanted from the feds to throw this big uh, party. Um, the technical name of it was the Lewis and Clark Centennial, uh, Lewis and Clark Centennial and American Pacific Exposition and Oriental Fair. Um, and the fair motto was, westward the course of empire takes its way. If I were to hand that sentence to an editor, it would get edited. <laughs> so this fair, you might think that it's all about, you know, Lewis and Clark. Where did they go? What was their, what was their route? Who were these guys? Let's have an ex exhibition about every single person on this uh, gigantic Corp Discovery Party. Um, there was a little bit of that. But mostly it was about exhibits from around the world, uh, visits from... Uh, Exhibitions from various American states. And the biggest one actually was uh, from Italy. Uh, Italy, they brought in a whole bunch of like awesome statuary. Uh, they also had things, yes, like a Japanese village. And really uncomfortably, they had a tribal Filipino village. So the United States had only recently acquired the Philippines from Spain. Um, we won it in a game of Spanish-American War. And... <laughs> To 
exhibit how awesome it was that we had the Philippines now, uh, there were some Filipino tribespeople called the Igorot, I'm probably saying their name wrong, who lived in a simulated tribal village who were supposed to do tribal things, like start fires with flint or whatever, um, while various white people looked at them. So there was essentially a human zoo right here in Portland, Oregon. A living museum, excuse me. Yeah, sure, it was just like Colonial Williamsburg. So the, the image that is uh, behind me right now, uh, that is from the original World Forestry Center, which at the time was the world's largest log cabin, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, making a giant log cabin is really great, uh, but one problem about making a giant log cabin is that it's wood. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever started a campfire before, um, but campfires are usually started with wood. And in, in the 1960s, this thing burned down in a gigantic inferno of, well, gigantic proportions. Uh, so it is no more. Down there is the Forestry Center by the zoo that is a replacement for what used to be the world's largest log cabin. Um, so, this big Lewis and Clark Expo, it was a big hit for Portland. Um, this was a P Portland historian called Joseph Gaston. Uh, no word if he was especially good at expectorating. And it's from 1911. He says, quote, The very decision to hold the exposition strengthened every man that put down a dollar for it. And from that very day, <clears throat> and from that very day, Portland business, Portland real estate, and Portland's great future commenced to move up to move with confidence, courage, steadfastness, and accelerating energy, and the movement never halted or hesitated from that day to this. The exposition, <laughs> the exposition attracted hundreds of thousands of people, many of them wealthy to this city, who knew nothing of the advantage of Portland and its surroundings. They were surprised and pleased at what, the, at what they had found and learned, and one way to spread the story of Portland's beauty and future prospects. And then came back to invest their money in Portland, property and business, unquote. So you would think that a gigantic World's Fair-esque event that was by all means successful and had all kinds of Italian statues, a Japanese village, and a human zoo would raise Lewis and Clark's profile a little bit. It did, but only a little. Um, after the 1905 Lewis and Clark Centennial Exposition, Lewis and Clark start becoming local heroes. Uh, they start being well-known in the Pacific Northwest, uh, and they do see little glimmers of them getting mythologized. This is, this is like one of my favorite um, things from Lewis and Clark as the mythical figures from 1905. This was made for the Expo, and it's called Lewis and Clark on the Lower Columbia. And from here you can see the, you can see the figures who will eventually be the larger-than-life statuesque you know, godly heroes that stare down at tweakers from the Oregon Historical Society. Um, my favorite part of this painting right here is that they're in their canoe and uh, Sacagawea is standing up and she's got her hands out to the other Native Americans and she's saying, don't worry guys, it's cool. They're with me. I'm worrying. Vouching for them. So... After, after the 1905 Expo, you see mentions of Lewis and Clark creep up a little bit. Um, most of the time when they're mentioned, though, they're mentioned in the context of the Louisiana Purchase. You know, America, we doubled in size, bought a bunch of land from France, 
um, sent some dudes out there to go look at it. Um, Lewis and Clark, if you'll recall, had nothing really to do with the Louisiana Purchase. Um, Thomas Jefferson, he wanted them to uh, go find the Northwest Passage. They didn't. So, again, that is like what Jefferson tried to do, putting spin on what had been considered a failed mission. Uh, another big notable thing, locally, in 1942, there was a local school in Portland called the Albany Collegiate Institute, and it changed its name to Lewis and Clark College. Yeah. The law school I didn't go to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are getting closer and closer to them being the big statuesque figures that they are now. Um, they're at least mentioned at this point. Again, all through the 1800s, it's nothing. Slight mentions in the 1890s uh, become sort of local figures in about 1905. Uh, they got a big bump in 1905, or excuse me, 1952. In uh, 1952, their big boost was from a book called The Course of Empire by historian Bernard DeVoto. And this is about how awesome America is for continuing to expand and just sort of glom onto nearby land masses. So it's uh, about westward expansion, and it uses the Lewis and Clark expedition uh, as kind of a narrative climax. Uh, DeVoto's book had sold decently well. Uh, he was not an obscure historian, by the way. Uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize. He won a National Book Award. Uh, but this isn't what gives Lewis and Clark the big boost into becoming, you know, Lewis and Clark. Um, the guy who really made them what they are was this guy called Donald Jackson. And in the 60s, he published the letters of Lewis and Clark of the Lewis and Clark expedition and related documents. You can find us at Powell's. Um, and Jackson, he has this whole different take on Lewis and Clark that I think Jefferson would have been really into. So Jefferson, again, he tried to spin it as, oh, guys, it was a science mission all along. And Donald Jackson, he emphasized how the things that they discovered, all the animals they found, all the interesting rocks that they kind of tripped over. Um, and he really sort of resurrects them as literary figures. Um, he says that they are... He called them in his uh, big, long, fawning introduction to this thing, quote, the writingest explorers ever, unquote. <laughs> yeah, uh, something that he also really plays up is the fact that these guys were, quote, unquote, diverse. Uh, they had York, uh, William Clark's African-American slave. They had Sacagawea, who is a Native American and a woman, so she ticks two boxes. And they had French people. Um, sure. So he kind of, you know, he kind of like emphasizes the great diverse pageantry that is America, you know, in microcosm in the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, and this is Lewis and Clark, the myth growing out of Lewis and Clark, the, you know, historical stuff. Uh, also in 1969, the Lewis and Clark, excuse me, in 1969, the Lewis and Clark Trail Heritage Foundation was founded, where chunks of the Lewis and Clark Trail now have those signs along the road. Yes, I'm seeing some nodding, where you can see them sort of pointing out into the, like, westward expansive distance. And that is now this monument across America with signs and everything. Um, yeah. And then there was the really, really big thing that I think more than anything else solidified Lewis and Clark as mythological figures. You can probably guess what the next thing I'm going to click on is, which is this thing right here. 
Um, Stephen Ambrose's book, Undaunted Courage. Uh, my dad made me read this when I was in high school, and I think that's very appropriate because this is really a dad book. Like, <laughs> Stephen Ambrose, he writes books for your dad who's kind of into history, but he doesn't want to think America's bad or anything. Um, no, my dad has very nuanced opinions. He's great. Um, you know, if you really want to know about the schematics of, like, a, you know, flying fortress, but you don't want to get into, like, heady stuff about, say, economics or gender, you know, Stephen Ambrose is the guy for you. So they get mythologized by this guy, and I think that really seals the deal. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about why on earth were they ignored in the 1800s. That was a big sort of mystery for me. I can understand why they're beloved now. Um, I can understand why Donald Jackson's, you know, collection of all their writings and sort of resurrecting them as literary figures in the 60s had a great deal of appeal. But for me, when I was looking into this, I'm thinking, why was there the gigantic gap? And the best thing I found about this was from a historian whose name is Andrew Caton, and he's with the University of Miami. And he had this pretty great analysis of Lewis and Clark being obscure in the 1800s. And I am going to quote him at length. This is a really long quote, sorry about that, but this is a better distillation than I could ever do of why Lewis and Clark were not a big deal for the better part of a century. Caton says, quote, Lewis and Clark were sons of 18th century British America who grew up in an era of global Republican revolution. As their journals demonstrate, they were men for whom self-restraint was the ultimate virtue, men not given to self-revelation. The world, which acquired meaning through the slow, deliberate accumulation of data into recognizable patterns, was a wondrous place that human beings could eventually understand and control. Mastery, a word with pejorative connotation in our society, connoted the triumph of human power after centuries of subjugation to the forces of monarchy, superstition, or barbarism. It should not surprise us that Lewis and Clark journals appealed to few people in 19th century North America. The explorers operated in the tradition of 18th century enlightened sensibility. That's enlightened as in like the enlightenment, not enlightened as in like you're under a Bodhi tree and you achieve nirvana. Um, of 18th century enlightened sensibility embodied in the life and mind of Jefferson. They were part of a culture that assumed the possibility of progress. Lewis and Clark had the distinction of working on the cusp of a turn from rationality into irrationality, from enlightened self-control and discovery into an acceptance of romantic, as in romanticism, not like kissing, um, from enlightened self-control and discovery to an acceptance of romantic notions of racial, racial predestination and emotion. It was a movement from Jefferson to Jackson, from Candide to Heathcliff, literary reference. The sheer curiosity and patience of Lewis and Clark would soon be in short supply in the United States. By the 1860s, Americans would kill each other with abandon, leaving their melancholy president to wonder whether the Civil War was a divine plan of expiation for their collective sins. And what Caton is saying there is that he says, no wonder these guys were forgotten for the better part of a century because the 1800s sucked so much. <laughs> You eventually got into the antebellum period where America is threatening to tear itself apart. You eventually got into the Civil War where America is literary, literally tearing itself apart. You, then you had Reconstruction, which is one of the most fraught and terrible periods of American history. It's also fascinating. After that, you had the decadent and just kind of gross Gilded Age. And 
only in the 20th century, when we are literally landing people on the moon, do we start to believe in progress again, of a kind. It's the progress that steals land from Amer Native Americans and subjugates women and is racist and all that. But a progress and expansion of sorts. So, what he's saying, and I think I, I can get on board, is that there was this great period of war and slaughter and romanticism and emotion and nihilism, and only later on, when we had rocket ships, could we believe in a bunch of guys who walked across North America. Thank you. All right, folks, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, for more information about Stumptown Stories, search for Stumptown Stories on Facebook. Uh, interesting times. We are recorded at the studios of Portland's X-Ray FM, 91.1 and 107.1 in Portland, Oregon, and engineered by Arthur Rosado. Uh, we are dependent upon crowdfunding. So if you want to make a contribution, go to interestingtimespodcast.com and click on the donate link. Uh, also, we are on iTunes. Go to iTunes. Give us five stars. Give us a review. That also helps out the show. It lets other people discover this thing. Uh, we're on Stitcher. Uh, I am on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. Uh, Twitter and Tumblr, at Joe Streckert. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.